This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Greg Jarrett. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm David Asman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 30th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Are things shifting back? Republicans are doing slightly better again in some polls ahead of midterms after a summertime swing toward Democrats. So the question is, what's behind the new vibe? They want to talk about the economy. They want to talk about crime, things that voters give them a double-digit advantage on. So I think you're going to see very strict messaging as we really head down the home stretch here. We speak with Fox News Sunday anchor Shannon Bream. I'm Chris Foster. Five years ago tomorrow, the deadliest mass shooting in American history at a music festival in Las Vegas. It felt like forever. It would just kept going and going and going. Not The bullets would just rain down. And it was like this war zone. And then all of a sudden there would be a delay. And then you'd think it's going to stop. But then it just would come down again and again over and over. And I'm former U.S. Senator Scott Brown. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Some new polling came out this past week showing some momentum may be with Republicans in the generic ballot polling, and the pundits and analysts are parsing the numbers to figure out why. Fox News contributor Carl Rove still guesses in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that Republicans may win in the House, but not by as much as history might indicate. The New York Times chief political analyst wrote a piece this week titled, Are Political Winds Blowing in Republicans' Favor Again? Still, a new Wall Street Journal poll shows independents are going with Democrats over Republicans by three points. But the real test is in individual races. This week, new Fox News polling showed Republican Senate candidate Dr. Oz closing the gap behind the Democrat John Fetterman in Pennsylvania by four points now. But in Georgia, the Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock pulled ahead by a bit more over Republican Herschel Walker, now up five points. Well, Georgia is the most competitive battleground state in the country. Uh, and statewide races in Georgia are going to be very, very competitive. Senator Reverend Warnock, my colleague, has done an extraordinary job representing everybody in Georgia. Georgia's other senator, Democrat John Ossoff, said he'd keep working to make sure Warnock wins. The balance of power in the Senate is at stake. Republicans need just one seat to gain a simple majority. And another critical seat where polling is incredibly tight is in Nevada, where Republican candidate Adam Laxalt is ahead of incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto by just under two points in the real clear politics average. So the reality is there are 51 votes right now to pass something like another inflationary spending bill, which would continue to cripple our economy. Nevada is almost 16 percent inflation. The national average is eight. And that's what it comes down to. The issues. Poll after poll has inflation as the top concern for voters. But preserving democracy, election and voting issues and abortion are next up to varying degrees, depending on the poll and depending on the state. We've seen the poll numbers on sort of this trajectory. Shannon Bream is the host of Fox News Sunday. Democrats closing the gap, the closer they got 
to the midterms, but we know that almost all polling gets really close or at least tightens into the midterms. So even these individual races that we look at, and you have to be tracking along with everything else that's happening, we know that the economy and inflation still polls as number one across every one of these polls. So as long as people feel like they're struggling with the economy, and our poll showed, gosh, close to 80% of people said they've struggled over the last six months with the economy, then they're going to hold whichever party is in power to account for that in some way. It's going to have some influence on their votes. We saw the president tick up a little bit with his rating. We saw the Democrats close the gap and overcome the Republicans and some of the generic balloting. And now it seems that settling out again, it's it's so much of that generic ballot is within the margin of error. So I think that everybody is thinking, all right, we got six weeks left. It is nose to the grindstone. There is no letting up. The Democrats are going to talk about the topics they think are good for them, which is the former President Trump, his legal troubles, him being back in the picture. Is he still running the party? Abortion. Is your state going to outlaw it? Are you going to lose access? Republicans don't want to talk about any of that. They want to talk about the economy. They want to talk about crime, things that voters give them a double digit advantage on. So I think you're going to see very strict messaging as we really head down the home stretch here. Yeah, the New York Times, Nate Cohn, looked up to, as you know by many, as a sort of election forecaster and tea leaves reader. He highlighted Google searches as a possible indicator. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting and I'm skeptical, but he noted <laughs> that recently those searches pertaining to, you know, the economy and the inflation and the border had gone up. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's not a terrible indicator, right? Just broadly looking at what Americans are typing into the search engine. Yeah, it's interesting to me. And I think that that would capture a snapshot, too, of younger voters. Mm. I think it would probably skew that way. We all know that older voters tend to really turn out, especially in midterms. They're the more motivated. They're more invested. They've seen things and they want to make their voices heard. As much as we hear the explosion about get out the vote with younger voters, they don't seem super enthusiastic. They don't love President Biden in a lot of ways. They feel like he's sort of not delivered to what they had hoped for when they voted for him. And I think all voters have some sense of that when their candidate becomes president, because they can't give you everything on day one that they promised or that you hoped would be their top issue. So it does continue to seem to us from what we can track that older voters are still more engaged about actually showing up or turning in their ballot or getting there. So I don't know how the Google searches relate to them. I know my parents, they love them some Google, but they're on it a lot less than like my nieces and nephews. Right. We focused last week for our From Washington podcast on Nevada, because obviously it's a critical Senate race. And on abortion, the Republican candidate, Adam Laxall, and he said this to Fox uh, this week, hey, abortion laws aren't changing in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And Mitch McConnell was recently asked as well about the GOP strategy on abortion. And he said, you know, different candidates will have different ways of addressing mm-hmm. this issue depending on the state they're in. Is that what we're going to see from Republicans as they try to take the issue off the table from Democrats, just remind them this is a state's thing. Yeah, I really get the sense from conversations within GOP circles that that is their messaging is a couple of things to say, hey, if you're here voting in a blue state, it's not going away. Your access is not going away. So vote on the candidates and the issues that matter. That one's not in play. Or to say, ask the Democrats where their line is. Democrats are, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy for them to point to these red state laws and say like, hey, here it's six weeks. Here's the heartbeat. Here it's whatever it is. Republicans want to try to change that conversation to say to Democrats, where do you draw the line? Are you OK in a third trimester? Are you OK with funding by taxpayers for abortions? Those mm-hmm. things do not pull well. So Republicans are trying to go at it. Um, I understand in some of these races, it's a very concerted go on offense situation with the abortion issue. If they know they're going to have to talk about it, they want to force Democrats to answer 
difficult questions that they've had to answer in reverse. So I think that, you know, so many of these House races, there's so much nuance. And and that's true even in the statewide Senate races, that those candidates have to be smart with the constituents they have. Let's talk about Hurricane Ian, Shannon. Obviously, it's done just tremendous uh, damage. But it does seem like Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, he put politics aside um, as this was making landfall this past week, um, said now's not the time for penniness, lives are at stake. President Biden and the White House said they're doing everything they can for the people of Florida. And it kind of makes you think there's nothing like an intense natural disaster to refocus everyone. But they often start to trickle back up in the aftermath, mm-hmm. right? That's true. And and you think about these natural disasters for states, often it is a chance for governors to prove their leadership. And mm. you hope that everybody involved is truly saying, let's forget the politics. Let's get the relief where it needs to go. It sounds like the White House is totally on board. But remember in the wake of Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy that there were those shots of Governor Christie, the New Jersey governor, and President Obama walking together and kind Mm. of um, in sorrow together over the devastation and the loss. And that image went a long way for people who wanted to see bipartisanship. But then critics were like, gosh, Chris Christie, this close to an election, you know, giving... um, President Obama, this wonderful image that he can use to show that they're working together. I mean, it doesn't take long for people to start worrying about the political impacts of what's going on. But for governors caught in these situations, they're the essentially the kind of state level commander in chief. They're the chief executive of their states. It's a chance to rise to the moment, put things aside and and really be the leader your people need for you to be. And I'm glad that the White House connected um, with Governor DeSantis. Yes, they are probably di- diametrically opposed on everything. And remember, President Biden was supposed to be in Florida. This week, and he was going there to take shots at DeSantis. I mean, they are political foes, but a beautiful thing that in this moment that is so tragic for my home state that they are working together and we can only hope that will continue. Things seem to be escalating with Russia, Shannon. This whole week has just been (laughs) news Mm -hmm. after news. Um, Vladimir Putin said he wasn't bluffing over using, you know, modern sophisticated weapons. That was read to mean nuclear weapons. Partially mobilizing 300,000 reservists. Um, the Nord Stream pipelines have been damaged. Uh, Fox's uh, Pentagon correspondent, Jen Griffin, was told by a senior military official that the U.S. was absolutely not involved. And now we see these referendums in the Donbass region possibly being a reason for Russia to claim it can annex more parts mm-hmm. of Ukraine. We were told after Ukraine's counteroffensive wins that Putin might feel cornered and do something. What should we be watching for to see how much bigger this gets? Well, you know, I was talking to someone very senior here in Washington about this today. And what's the end game? How how does this end? You know, there's so much speculation about whether Putin would actually use a nuke or whether he uses that to manipulate through fear. What would be the end game for him in that? Because even if he dropped a nuke on some portion of Ukraine, I don't think these folks are going to say like, OK, it's over. We give up. I mean, these people are willing to and have been dying over this fight for their territorial integrity for their country. I do think these sham referendum votes are very interesting if you watch his language because, you know, New York Times had interesting reporting that people were trying to not even go vote and they were being dragged out of their homes. I mean, what kind of choice do you have for the safety of yourself and your family and your loved ones if that's the vote? Now, Putin also used the language last week in in his speech talking about that he, in reference to nuclear weapons, that he would do whatever it took to protect his people and his territory. So if he's now going to say that these places have been annexed or now, quote unquote, in some way, Russian territory, does that mean he would use nukes to defend or to try to keep his hands on 
things like Crimea that that now there's right. a whole new you know section of of Ukraine that he's going to say, oh, people voted, they wanted this. It's just a really bad stew, and nobody sees an end in sight. You know, the calls for more funding and more equipping from the U.S. I mean, we've been the leader, clearly, on doing that for the Ukrainian people, but they're the ones who have, who have stepped up and fought back. And I don't think there's a scenario in which any of the Western world feels like Putin should ever be able to claim any victory here. I mean, there are bad actors. Um, China is watching this with respect to Taiwan, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are North Korea, Iran. There's a message to be sent to all of them for how this plays out. And I think the U.S. and our top leaders are very aware that this is not just about Ukraine. Hmm. Finally, Shannon, um, as we see in the polling, and you noted it, voters are most concerned with the economy, but specifically inflation. And um, Stanley Druckenmiller, successful billionaire investor, said this week he's anticipating a possible bad recession by the end of next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, He placed all the blame really on the Fed for years of low rates and quantitative easing. I know that's just one man's opinion, right? But you hear from somebody like that. It does make you think about 2024. I imagine Mm -hmm. as we look at history, that would create a very different and volatile political environment heading into a presidential election. Yeah, and he's not the only one. Um, We've seen so many business leaders and polling among top CEOs and C-suite level folks show they do think we're either in a recession or we're going there. I think that number was like into the 70 percent, somewhere in there. So there are definite worries out there. You saw Carl Icahn, um, who people know the world over, also a very important investor and speaker on the world of finance, saying that he thinks terrible things are coming and, and this inflation situation reminds him of the downfall of the Roman Empire. So we know things are going to be difficult. Um, if the economy gets worse, I mean, we've had some upticks. Yes, inflation is still crazy high, but it has been either stabilized or slowly tiny, you know, ticking down. But now gas prices are going up again. And that's such a big part of that inflation mm-hmm. measure. We know in August, inflation was slightly better or even. But when you took gas out, everything else was up. I mean, groceries up 13.5% August to August. I mean, these are real world things that hit people. So if gas starts to tick up again, you've got to feel like we're in a bad situation. Um, People are not buying new homes or buying cars because the interest rates are making it very difficult to make those big purchases that drive the U.S. economy. So um, I think we're all hoping for the best, but bracing for the worst. And it certainly trickles into politics because people punish the party in power if they're suffering at home. Shannon Bream, host of Fox News Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is former U.S. Senator Scott Brown with your Fox News commentary coming up. On October 1st, 2017, a 64-year-old man from Mesquite, Nevada, from the 32nd floor of a hotel overlooking the Las Vegas Strip, fired more than 1,000 bullets using two dozen firearms into the crowd at a country music festival below. Jason Aldean was playing, and we were in our booth, and we thought it was fireworks, and then it just didn't stop. She was working as a vendor and hid in a beer truck. Sixty people were killed, more than any other mass shooting in the United States. 
More than 400 people were shot and wounded, another 400-plus hurt in the chaos. We are joined together today in sadness, shock, and grief. President Trump addressed the nation the next day. It was an act of pure evil. The gunman shot himself in the head and died before police got to him, leaving his motive for the shooting a mystery. It happened at the end of the three-day Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. My friends and I, we had VIP tickets in the uh, Neon Lounge, and we were so excited for pretty much the full three days. Lisa Fine Cavalli was there. But the headliner, Jason Aldean, was the, the big dream for us. And we were pretty much in the front row in the VIP section, looking forward to three days of country fun. Yeah. It was the best time of our lives, actually, <laughs> until it wasn't. Until it wasn't, yeah. Um, how and when did you realize all this was happening? Did you hear shots? Did you see people run? Did you see people go down? Uh, how long was it before you were confused to when you weren't confused? Well, to me, I know a lot of people did say they were confused and thought it was fireworks. I'm actually originally from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, been around guns pretty much my whole life. And when the shots were being fired, it didn't take long for me to know that there was a huge that this was a huge problem. And I immediately started yelling to my friends to get down and it it was very surreal because you know there was you know twenty two thousand people you know throughout this concert and people were very confused people were um, you know thinking hey this is part of the show it's well it wasn't and when you're the one that knows that this is not part of the show and people have been drinking and having fun they don't really listen to you so I just kept saying get down this is a real gun get down I just wanted to save our lives and. People kept saying, no, it's not a real gun. And I just was so very clear, get down. It, we can't run out there. You got to get down. We're, you know, we're going to get shot if we don't find a way to duck and cover, basically. I imagine your world gets very small at that point. You realize, well, these 22,000 people are on their own. I got to do what I got to do and take care of my friends as best I can. Was there any cover for you? You know, we were in that kind of their bleachers, but they're nice seats. And we, I just really convinced my friends to get down in the fetal position as down as far as possible, because imagine in our minds, we don't know what's going on. It could be terrorism. It could be people are coming in and they're going to, you know, it's going to get crazier than it. You know, it's just like, you just don't know in any moment what's going to happen. And so we were just down under our seats and it's very, it's very surreal because this is happening in a moment and you do, you get this tunnel vision of, well, at least I did a very clear survival mode. And I know a lot of people did panic, but I know there were a lot of people that also just in that complete survival mode, things get very sharp, clear. You're paying attention to every single thing that's happening. I was in seat 1A. So I had the aisle, which gave me a view of what was happening, which is pretty unfortunate given what I was watching because I was watching people being shot out on the grass and I could hear people being shot around us up top as well. We were in one of the kill zones and it was just complete chaos. We were not only, you know, listening to people being shot and screaming. We were, you know, I was visually seeing this. And so I decided 
I felt like we were going to die. I was pretty certain that this is the night we're going to die. And I just started recording with my iPhone because I wanted my kids and my family to know what happened to us. That is a real gun. And I figured they would find our phones. There would be some way that they would find out. So that was terrifying. And I kind of figured out that the bullets were coming from up and behind where we were because the bodies that were being hit as they were running were flying away from me. And that was just something that I noticed, like every little detail I was noticing. And uh, yeah, the most horrific nightmare of our lives. Yeah. Uh, the shooting lasted for 10 minutes. At the time, could you have could you have guessed that? I imagine it felt like forever. It felt like forever. And I it felt like probably half an hour or more because like I said, you're in a slow motion, but you're also, you know, very keen with everything going on. But the world just felt like forever. I mean, it's in fact in some interviews I had I had done they said you know it was it was 10 minutes I was shocked I said are you kidding me it felt like forever it just it would just kept going and going and going not the bullets would just rain down and it was like this war zone and then all of a sudden there would be a delay and then you think it's going to stop but then it just would come down again and again over and over and I I just remember the thoughts of all these people and you can't help them because you're, you can die yourself. You, you, you know, the, the helping occurred later, obviously when the bullets did stop, but it was, it was just complete torture for every sense of the word of torture in your brain, knowing that people are dying. Yeah. And there, there really wasn't anything that anyone could do. Um, it took a while to figure out where the shooting was coming from because it wasn't a guy on the same level as the crowd. So law enforcement had to find this guy. We still, five years later, have no real idea why he did it. I imagine that doesn't help with closure, for lack of a better word. You can't, you can't get your head around why this happened, right? Yeah, and it took a couple of years, and then you just decided that you had to let go of any sort of closure for this tragic night and that you just had to try to move on the memories haunt you for the rest of your life and your world after being in a mass shooting is completely transformed you're not the same human being you don't look at people the same everything is very terrifying and everything you do is now skewed through this mind of that at any moment, someone could open fire on you. It's sadly just the way it is. And I'm very, very just taken back by how many mass shootings are happening over and over and over everywhere. All our safe places aren't safe anymore is how it feels to a person yeah. that uh, goes through this. When you hear, far too often, when you hear about these stories on the news, I'm sure you do go back to that night and and have some sort of long distance empathy for the people who are involved. Yeah, it's it's very strange because I used to before, you know, surviving this mass shooting, I used to, you know, watch the news and I felt like I had empathy for people going through things like this. And then, you know, and I felt like I felt 
true pain for them. And then after the mass shooting, I would just hear about these shootings at these schools and just, you know, all over these workplaces. And I would literally drop to my knees and just start trembling. It's like PTSD, where you it just all comes flooding back the memories, the smells, the sounds, you feel just torture in your soul for them knowing what they have to struggle with. You were able to take some time off with um, being part of a lawsuit after the shooting. And um, I said, just kind of get your head right. And you also were running this Route 91 Strong nonprofit um, to help people. And then you eventually transferred that money to the Vegas Resiliency Center, which is still in existence. Tell people about that. Yeah. So a group of survivors, we got together and for two and a half years, we raised $500,000 to help survivors with their their lives. Um, We were offering financial support to those that couldn't work. They needed diapers, they needed, you know, tires and gas, and they needed food. And that's where we stepped in. And there was such a generous outpouring of love to help these families. And we did that for two and a half years. I feel like that was a part of us also not dealing with our pain because we were, you know, we were just helping people. And after two years, it it became um, very challenging because we were reliving the, um, the the tragic event over and over by vetting these, you know, survivors and making sure that the people that were actually there were getting the support they needed. Um, And that's why we decided to um, transfer all of our funds to the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, and they will continue, you know, they were already doing some incredible work. And then we decided that we would, you know, just donate everything to them. And that's where the, you know, shooting happened. And we were located all over, you know, the United States um, helping people. And um, yeah, Route 91 Strong was very special. We connected with so many families and and we hope that people can continue to donate to them. Well, Lisa, I'm sorry to, you know, drag you through it once again for this interview. I know it's I know it's stories you've told before and thoughts you've had before. Um, but but thank you for coming on and um, and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Professional sand sculptor Matt Long hand-carved a sandcastle in tribute to 9-11 first responders at the Tunnel to Towers New York City 5K. The run and walk honors the lives of those lost in the attacks of September 11, 2001, and was started by the family of New York City firefighter Stephen Siller. It was held on September 25th, and this year it put a spotlight on the 13 military men and women who were killed during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021. Long says it took him four 
14 hours to complete the intricate sculpture, which has the words "We support our heroes" on it in front. He says he started making sandcastles years ago when he would vacation at the beach in Cape May, New Jersey, with his kids. And it's not just a hobby for long. He's a professional sand sculptor with four world championship medals to prove it. Long says creating the sculpture was a thrill, and it was personal for him. He grew up on Staten Island with Tunnel to Towers founder Frank Siller and the Siller family. Long says his sculpture honoring the first responders is his most exciting moment this year. In New York City, Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Scott Brown. What's on your mind? The Chinese economy might be slowing, but the global ambitions of President Xi Jinping certainly are not. Everything Xi does on the economic, diplomatic, and military fronts sends an unmistakable message that China intends to supplant the United States as the world's preeminent power. To check China's ambitions, U.S. lawmakers should advocate for policies that strengthen America across the board, from rebuilding our military to encouraging innovation in the private sector. Further, Congress should pass legislation to ban Chinese apps such as TikTok and WeChat, which gather millions of pieces of information about American citizens. It should concern legislators that three of the most popular apps and devices with young Americans today, TikTok. Retail giant Xiying and、G、DJI drones are all headquartered in Beijing. One can only imagine what they're doing with the data of millions of Americans. Instead, some in Congress are advancing an agenda that undermines America's leading tech innovators. One of the last areas where U.S. maintains an advantage over Chinese Communist China, the Innovation and Choice Act online, championed by Senator Amy Klobuchar, is one such piece. Klobuchar's legislation allows regulators to arbitrarily target online platforms over a certain size if they are deemed guilty of a new set of violations. Unlike U.S. legislation that punishes our best companies, the CCP's Made in China 2025 plan aims to overtake the U.S. in every facet of global high-tech manufacturing, AI, robotics, and cyber, to name a few. Unlike China's state-run industrial operation, it is the private sector, not the government, that drives U.S. innovation. Most of the research and development responsible for our edge in military platforms, space exploration, communications technologies, and life-saving vaccines is paid for by private sector companies. Last year alone, the top six U.S. tech companies spent a combined 140 billion in research and development. To put that number in perspective. It is 30 billion more than the Pentagon spent on research and development. Constraining American tech companies is detrimental to our national security and will undercut the prosperity that such enterprises have fostered for the past three decades. While some in Congress distrust and villainize the tech sector, our partners and adversaries alike understand what an asset the tech sector is to our nation. While there are legitimate concerns about censorship and disinformation on tech platforms, creating a new antitrust regime that could break up our most successful companies is not the right response. Current antitrust laws, which focus on consumer welfare, are working. Moreover, the free market is working when it comes to corporate overreach on censorship and disinformation. For example, Netflix recently lost 50 billion in market cap and nearly 1 million subscribers because viewers are not interested in documentaries from the Sussexes or content from the Obamas. Consumers are sending tech a message. 
America must maintain its edge in the technology sector. We cannot take our status for granted. Today, five of the top 20 global technology firms are based in China. If we hobble our private sector innovators by passing anti-innovation legislation, China's position will grow and grow fast. America will, in turn, suffer. This is former U.S. Senator Scott Brown. I co-wrote this piece with Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.